And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Matthew 21, verse 30. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, please bless me as I preach to bring forth your word with truth and build up your people with your words, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're wondering what I'm preaching out of, Jane has begun making me these little preaching booklets. So, with Jesus on the front. Finish what you started. Actions speak louder than words. These are sound maxims, general truisms. Um, They're actually not the point of what Jesus is trying to say in today's parable. They're the truism that is so recognizably true that he takes that as the starting point, the ground of common acceptance from which then he wants to make his teaching. So I want to kind of just take that idea and just move it to the side and say, yeah, that's, that's the first step of what Jesus is teaching. Is it that truism that we all accept? And then what is he getting at? He's not giving general advice. He's talking about how we respond to the gospel. So the first son, who says no, but then changes his mind, Jesus maps on to the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Their life decisions were a no to the will of God, blatantly flaunting and disobeying the commandments of God until, and Jesus really anchors this sort of, it's in the midst of a discourse about John the Baptist, until they heard John the Baptist preaching, and then they changed their minds. I actually learned something. I, I, I was like, how did I not learn? How, how is this not more common knowledge? How did I not learn this 10 years ago? The Bible actually has two words for repent. I, did, you, did any of you know that? I didn't. Everyone knows metanoia. I'm sure you've heard sermons on metanoia, like changing of the mind. There's another word, metamelomai. Who knew? Um, but it means sort of the changing of the intention. But I have a friend who's a Greek whiz, and so I called him about it this week. And, he said, perhaps the best translation would be to change your tune. Because there's kind of, at the root in there is the word melody. So to change your tune about God and this gospel. And I, I love that. Anyways, um, so that's the word that Jesus uses here. The tax collectors and the prostitutes changed their tune about the gospel, about God's will. They went from saying no to God's will, hearing the preaching, and then they believed that they needed to repent to stop oppressing the poor, in the case of the tax collector, um, to stop sinning with the body, uh, in the case of the prostitute. They believed the preaching, and then they trusted and followed Jesus as Messiah. Because that was sort of John's twofold thing, right? Repent now, and that guy's the Messiah. That's what John was all about. They believed John. They believed Jesus was going to save them, and that they needed to repent to receive his salvation. On the other hand, there's the other son who says yes, but then ultimately does not obey. And Jesus says this corresponds to the chief priests and the elders. That's who Jesus is dialoguing here with in this chapter in Matthew, which takes place um, after Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So we're just four days away from his crucifixion at this point. He's talking with the chief priests and the elders who were born into religious families, chief priests, they'd be sons of Aaron, right? And Levites as well. Um, They were serving in the temple. They had been, from the earliest days, studying the Torah and the prophets and the writings. They were well acquainted with the ways that God had chosen to work in sacred history. They knew how God dealt with his people in the past. They they attempted to keep God's laws and to honor them. 
So their life was a yes at first to God's will, right? They, they said yes. They're like, yeah, we're, we will be devout Jews, devout followers of God. But when a real prophet came, the first in 400 years, John the Baptist, they rejected his message, which we are familiar with because that's how the Bible story is told to us now. Like, oh yeah, the chief priest rejected. It's actually sort of surprising when you think about it. Of all people, they should have been the most primed to understand the sort of flavor of divine prophecy and the vigor of God's work. And yet they are the ones who rejected. They said yes, but then they didn't actually follow through with their actions of receiving the message of John of receiving the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Christ that Israel had been waiting for. They reject both. When you reject John, you reject Jesus, because John is pointing to Jesus. And then Jesus says, as if that wasn't a gross enough mistaken judgment, like the ones who should have recognized prophecy when it was in their lap, they actually had a second chance to still metamelomai, change their tune, when they saw tax collectors and prostitutes repenting and following the ways of God and following Christ. Jesus brings this forward as sort of a second witness to their mistake. Because it's a remarkable feature that John the Baptist doesn't do any miracles. He's not a wonder worker, right? He doesn't heal anybody of a physical disease. His witness is that people who were hardened sinners repented and gave their life to the Lord which should have been another additional sign to the chief priests and the elders. Like, look, these guys are repenting. If you've ever seen, and I wish I saw it more often, but the once or twice where I've seen someone go from hard-heartedly rejecting God to accepting him, it really has the the excitement of a miracle. It's like, what? That, you've changed your mind? (laughs) Glory to God. I've only, I, I can really only think of one concrete instance where I knew someone who just hated God rejected him entirely as a fiction, and then a year later called and, uh, and said, I, I, I believe it all now, I want to be baptized. And I was like, what? And I burst into tears. Um, Ivan, um, that was his name. It's a miracle of conversion. And the, but the chief priests and the elders, they saw that miracle and still did not believe. They hardened their hearts, and so hard were their hearts uh, that four days later, they would be the very ones we know who were crying out before Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. So here we are in church. Here we are among the religious. Most of you or many of you were um, born into re- Christian religious families. And I mean that word in a good sense. So clearly, although Jesus was speaking directly to those groups that were in front of him, because he had tax collectors and prostitutes among his own band of disciples, and he's talking to the chief priests. Um, Everything in the Gospels, everything in the whole Scripture, to use St. Paul's words, um, were written for our instruction. And so we who have gathered here in church this morning, the warning that we need to pay attention to is the warning to the chief priests and the elders. All of you have at some point said, yes, I I will go, sir. I will go, Lord whether um, it was as a child, whether it was at a um, walking the aisle at a Baptist church or a revival meeting of some kind, whether it was professing the faith at your confirmation, even just the very fact of your being here this morning is a sort of uh, initial intention of yes to the Lord. Yes, I believe. But of far greater importance than any past verbal affirmations or expressions of intention, of far greater importance is 
the practice in the present, the doing, the response to the gospel in the present. What will we, will we, the question is, to use the words from morning prayer, will we do with our lives what we profess with our lips? We've expressed good intentions. Will our lives follow through? It's the huge difference between saying to yourself, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, and then actually placing your hope and your trust in the risen Jesus and relying on him during the work week, on Saturdays, on vacation, all the days. Jesus puts the emphasis different than sometimes our church instinct today on sort of, yes, there was this moment in the past, right? Jesus is putting the emphasis on well, what is your actions revealing in the present? Christ teaches us here the right understanding and the true value of Christian works. And by works, I don't mean just doing, going out somewhere and doing some deed of charity. I just mean living as a Christian, which James, his half-brother, would un- later unpack in his epistle, which we've been reading in morning prayer. Faith without works is dead. Which is another way of saying, the son who says, I will go, but then doesn't actually go, has not done the will of the Father. Our deeds are the evidence of what we really believe. And that's the rationale or the sort of substructural idea behind all the passages we see in the scriptures about being judged on judgment day by our works. We heard it even in Ezekiel, right? Not because works have any saving value in themselves, only Christ has saving value. But our works reveal our faith. Our works reveal, oh, yes, I did it. I do actually trust in Jesus. The, um, God has given us no faithometer that we can just kind of like, like a meat thermometer, like put in our hearts and be like, ding, oh, yes, I have faith. Would that that existed. Um, we mistakenly think our feelings are that way sometimes. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I've got lots of warm religious feelings. Those are not always trustworthy. Sometimes they can be a sign of faith and sometimes misleading. The only thing that we have to know what's in our, sort of this, I mean, isn't it interesting that we're a mystery to ourselves? It's sort of the thing that the psychologists get at in a sort of half, halfway there of like, there's more going on here than we can rationally account for. Christians have known that forever. And there's so much more going on in here than we can rationally account for. And faith lives in that sort of deep, mysterious place of the soul. So how do we know if we have faith? Well, what, what does your life show? What do your works evidence? What fruit does the tree bear? God has given us the works as a sign. And I think it's really important, a danger, a thing that leads to a false gospel of works righteousness is to look at the three good works you did this week and be like, yes, yes, I have works, right? That would be the mistake what I'm saying. What I'm saying is look at all of the deeds of your life, every 10-minute chunk of the week, and ask the question, do my works reveal that I have faith? And when I look at my life, some of them do. I would only do those things if I trusted God. And others don't. Indistinguishable from the way a heathen would conduct themselves. So when we look at the work of our life and we're trying to examine, do I have have faith? If the analysis has been Christian, led by the Spirit, it doesn't lead to this sort of satisfaction of, yes, I, I I did three good deeds this week. It leads to the sort of frankly, humiliating recognition of a lot of my actions don't reveal faith. There is either mindless as the animals or um, 
faithless is the heathen. Which leads us then to the most Christian work of all, repentance. Metamelomai, changing, changing our tune and saying, oh Lord, I, I don't want to be living like an animal or like a heathen. I want to live as a Christian. I wish that every quarter hour of my week revealed something about you or that you were real in my life and the lives of those that I'm engaging with in day-to-day tasks. Repentance, sorrow for all the ways that our life still reveals fragments of unbelief that we want him to cleanse and bring us faith instead. In other words, crying out to Jesus for help and for mercy, just like tax collectors and prostitutes do, so that like them, we would enter the kingdom of heaven. And even in this, even in repentance, this sort of crown of all Christian work, um, we must always, always, it's so important, keep in mind that truth that Philippians 2 reveals. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you stop there, we don't have half the truth. The second half, for it is God who works in you to will and to work, both intention and action, to his good pleasure. Work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you. That's sort of the great um, insight into sort of, you know, we all watch a car, a car run, but only a mechanic really knows how all the pieces of the combustion and all this stuff are actually working to make it run. This is, the, this is the mechanic's insight. The way it works is, ultimately, it's not you producing this work. It's God, through his Holy Spirit who lives in you, who is inspiring that work, and then you are just perfecting it in, in time and in your body. But he is the one working in you, and you're the one working it out. And so that's the necessary piece that helps us understand when we read the book of James, when we hear the prophecies of Ezekiel, and Jesus is teaching about actions. We keep that in view to, to understand it rightly. It is God who works in you to will and to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Amen.